there, true believers, and welcome to Simply Devotion, the podcast that is all about seeking Jesus on deeper theological levels, because he is worthy of all of our devotion. to Simply Devotion. And I'm here with Jonathan again this week. We are going to be looking at the politics of the time of Jesus. But before we jump into that, I would just like to remind you, the good news about season two is that you don't have to have listened to season one to catch up with us in season two. Season one is in the archives if you want some extra podcasts to fill up your days and night. As for season two, let's get at it. What was Jesus up against when he comes forward and begins his ministry and people begin to call him Messiah? I don't know, Jonathan, uh, this is what we're going to talk about today. What are your thoughts on the world that Jesus just shows up in? Is it the same kind of Judaism that we classically think of? Yeah, a lot of times when we think of uh, Judaism, we think of the Old Testament, right? Uh, We think of, you know, the laws in Leviticus and a government that is organized around those laws and of course it's a religious government so there's a lot there about how to worship god how to follow god how to keep oneself pure in the presence of god and so when we think of judaism we think a lot about the old testament and what the old testament has to say but when jesus shows up the religion the jewish religion was actually not that similar to what we read about in the Old Testament. Right. Judaism morphs several times throughout history. You know, like, so you have the time of David, which is the classic time of Judaism, and you have the first temple built under Solomon, and then you have, like, all these kings that get progressively worse. You have the exile, and then you have, you know, where they're captured by Babylon. Yes. And then you have post-exile where they come back out from Babylon and you have stories like Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah and like a new start kind of like rebuilding the temple and sometimes we call that second temple Judaism it's the it's the Judaism that builds up out of coming out of exile from Babylon rebuilding a new temple and trying not to fall back into apostasy. That's kind of a big deal for the Judaism that's raging on in the time of Jesus. How do we not fall back into apostasy and end up being punished by God again? Yeah, the covenantal blessings and curses are huge in Second Temple Judaism because the reason that they were overcome by Babylon. The reason they lost their 
quote unquote independence as a nation was because they were unfaithful to God and God allowed these other nations to come in and conquer them. And so they're like, no, we don't want that anymore. We want to follow God in the way he wants us to follow him so that he will bless us so that we will become this awesome nation and we don't have to worry about being oppressed by any other government. Exactly. In fact, as the Old Testament canon closes, they never really get independence again. Like they're they're under the the Medes and the Persians, right? Yeah. Uh, King Darius, you know, is sort of like hovering over them. He's kind of like maybe even protecting them a little bit. But but as he fades away, then the Greek Empire comes in. It's not so favorable to them in that intertestamental time, right? Right. Yeah, it, it, they really aren't. Um, and that's where we get the stories of uh, the Maccabees who uh, revolted against uh, Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe it was. That's correct. Um, so they they revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, against uh, this, this Greek rule. There's a number of revolts and there's this whole period of skirmishes is really important to understanding second temple judaism because just as the medes and the persians pass away to the greeks the greeks pass away to the romans this is all happening in that time we call the intertestamental time between the closing of the old testament and the opening of the new testament that takes place over 400 years yeah and so we have this increased persecution where Israel never really has sovereignty fully again. There's a lot of political resentment. And so what what begins to happen by the time Rome takes over for Greece is Rome is really concerned because they're expanding and expanding their empire and they don't want people who are going to have skirmishes with them. They don't want people who have like religious uh, zealot, feverish, holy war against you, right? Which is what was happening between the Greeks and the Jews at the time of the Maccabees. So Rome comes along. They want to make a peace treaty with Israel. They want to rule Israel, but they want a peace treaty with Israel. One of the big objections that Israel had with Greece ruling over them is that Greece did not always respect their religious sovereignty. So, for example, at one point, the Greeks stormed the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Right. Right? Like, that's like the most offensive thing you could do, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pig was an abomination, according, you know, to the Old Testament. And so, because he is an abomination, how are you going to defile the temple with a pig? You know, it's, it's, it's literally an assault on their religion. The Romans take over the territory. The Romans are like, look, as long as you will accept our rule over you, we will not mess around with your religion. In other words, if you accept our sovereignty oppression and super high taxation, which is what they're going to do to them, they're right. going to oppress them, they're going to tax them. But in exchange for that, we will give you religious freedom. They, uh, the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana. Yeah, we will give you 
religious peace in exchange of political loyalty. Yes. This is going on at the time that Jesus and John the Baptist are rising to prominence. And so a lot of what happens in Second Temple Judaism is kind of a response to all of this history. It is a response to what does it mean to be God's chosen people, God's chosen nation in a world where we don't have sovereign or they don't have sovereignty. And there is another governmental power that is kind of in charge of them. So what does it mean to be Jewish in this time? And so we've got a lot of different ideas that started floating around during the time of Jesus about how it is that they're going to relate to their religion, but as well as how they're going to relate to Roman power. Right. We have a different political system that Jesus and his disciples are rising up out of. The idea of Messiah is amplified amongst Second Temple Judaism. I mean, it's there from the time of David when God promised David there would always be someone of his lineage upon the throne. However, the need for a Messiah is vastly amplified. Yeah. by the existence of pagan oppression. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and so now this idea of the Messiah is is kind of, it's morphing into or it's being added on. Uh, and it's this idea that, uh, that we're going to have a political Messiah, a Messiah who's going to free us from Roman oppression, and this Messiah is going to free us from political bondage, so to speak, and will establish us as a nation, uh, a sovereign nation that we can rule ourselves and, you know, usher in this wonderful time, you know, peace and prosperity. Right, right. There's this idea that, you know, ever since, you know, the Greeks came in, sacrifice the pig on the altar that who knows what next the pagans may do to us. So out of that fear, there has to be a response that's growing up. There are like these four different groups in Second Temple Judaism who, who all have this idea about what we should do about this massive oppression we have upon us. In fact, I might say, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts, John, the fact that there's this pagan oppression upon Israel and there's these various camps that have different ideas of who a Messiah would be and what a Messiah would do to, to liberate us from this oppression maybe is what really are the building blocks of Second Temple Judaism. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, so when we take a look at the different sects uh, individually and we try to understand what the different political ideologies are at the time, we begin to understand all the different approaches that the Jewish peoples began thinking about as, as they thought about Messiah and as they thought about uh, pagan oppression. So let, let's take a look at the Pharisees, for example. They're, they're probably one of the most common groups 
that most Christians are familiar with as they read through the Gospels. The Pharisees, they come up quite a bit. They're the bad guys, right? Well, they definitely do take on that role in the gospel narratives, right? They're always questioning Jesus. They stand in opposition to Jesus. They're always scheming against Jesus. So, yes, they do seem to be the bad guys. But who are the Pharisees? What did they think? What did they uh, teach? Um, And why were they so much in opposition to Jesus? Well, when you take a look at who the Pharisees were, the Pharisees were considered the separated ones, right? They thought that the problem that needed to be solved was unfaithfulness to Jewish law. And so they thought that if they could keep the law as perfectly as possible, then right? God would bless them, the Messiah would show up and free them from Roman oppression. So the emphasis for the Pharisees was the law and keeping the law. And in conjunction with that idea, we have what's called oral tradition. And see, this is where uh, things get a little bit messy with the Pharisees because um, they're not just reading the Old Testament. The Old Testament can only take you so far. You have to now interpret the Old Testament, right? So it's not just, let me keep Sabbath, but how do we keep Sabbath? All right, how do we maintain a kosher kitchen, right? And making sure that everything that we put into our bodies is actually kosher. And so they started adding on to the basic rules that we find in the Old Testament, and they started adding on additional rules. And these additional rules came from questions about, okay, how do I be the most faithful to what the law demands from me? So again, going back to the idea of Sabbath, all right? So I know I'm supposed to keep Sabbath, but if a chicken lays an egg on the Sabbath, am I allowed to eat that egg because that chicken had to work to produce that egg, right? So so these are the questions that they started asking. And to answer those questions, they kept adding on to the law. And that's what we call the oral tradition. And so they would oftentimes appeal to the different teachers that they would listen to and that they would follow and say, well, this guy would say this, this guy says this, you know, uh, and I think it's probably this guy and we're going to go in this direction. And so the Pharisees were all about trying to figure out how to keep the law perfectly. So those are the Pharisees. Right. So so we often have seen them as the bad guys just because they have like all these rules and all these laws and in all these extra laws that aren't from the Bible, but everyone's expected to keep. But but really their intention seems to be that they're trying to protect Israel. They're like making laws about the law because they believe Israel keeps ending up in apostasy by not taking the law serious enough. Right. So. So their approach is to amplify the law. I've heard it talked about from rabbis that that the oral law are fences around fences around fences to protect the law. Right. 
exactly. We don't want to be too loose with the law. We don't want to, as the thinking goes, we don't want, we want to make sure that we're as far from breaking the law as possible. So even if it may be quote unquote overkill, at least we're sure that we're not breaking the law. Right. And my, my understanding is the rabbinical system, which we'll talk about more in another podcast, the rabbinical system is actually a part of the the Pharisee tradition, right? The rabbis are actually teachers sent out from the Pharisees. Right. The Pharisees were probably the ones that were looked up to the most by your average Jewish citizen. Would you would you would you say that that's right, Vinny? Yeah, I would. I I I I believe that they were the largest of all the religious sex. Uh, they were the largest political movement in Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. So so most people would have agreed with the pharisaical interpretation of Judaism. Absolutely. And also, let's not forget that the reason the Pharisees are also an important um, system in Second Temple Judaism is unlike, say, the priests, you don't have to be born into them, you can be selected and educated and taught into becoming a Pharisee. So anyone in theory could become a Pharisee as opposed to some of these other groups. You gotta, you know, it's the luck of the birth drop. So those are the Pharisees. And now we have another group. And these guys are also mentioned in the gospels. They also kind of play some sort of role in antagonizing Jesus, although it may not have been as big a role as the Pharisees, they do still play somewhat of a role. And those are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are a little bit different. Well, not a little bit, a lot different from the Pharisees, particularly because they um, denied things like the oral tradition. They didn't like that stuff. No, they did not like the idea that some old dead guy was telling them how to keep the law, right? They, they even rejected the prophets, right? Like they they, yeah. they they accepted Moses, but they didn't even want the prophets because they saw the prophets as being old dead guys telling them what the law meant. Exactly. And so, yeah, the main emphasis of the Sadducees were the first five books of Moses. So it was it was Moses. That's who that was their their go to prophet. It was Moses. And whatever Moses said, that's what they were going to do. So they kind of rejected the oral uh, the oral tradition of the Pharisees, which obviously put them in opposition to the Pharisees. There was a little bit of a tumultuous relationship between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But the Pharisees still had to play the political game with the Sadducees because the Sadducees controlled the temple. The Sadducees uh, were the ones in charge of of the temple Um, so they were priests a lot of them were priests yes ah and so uh and so the of course the pharisees need the temple for religious purity right and for offering sacrifices but the guys in charge of all this stuff don't believe what the pharisees believe and and so there's kind of like you know there's a tension there but they kind of have to get along they have to work together. And not only that, but the Sadducees were also in charge of the 
Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of the Jewish people. It was the group that Rome allowed to operate for deciding cases and enforcing laws. Um, right. Right. So, so my understanding, and help me out here, John, my understanding is if the Pharisees lean right, and by right, I mean upholders of the law, upholders of the traditions, upholders of the oral tradition and the oral arguments, the the Sadducees are leaning left and they're kind of kind of got that political thing going. Right. And, and they're yes. kind of cozy with Rome, you know. Like oh, yes. Right. And it, that's why they're in charge of the Sanhedrin. Exactly. Because Rome, if you guys remember what we were talking about earlier, Rome allowed the Jews to have religious freedom. But Rome oftentimes picked who was in charge of the religion. And so the Sadducees, they kind of had this working relationship with Rome. They did what Rome wanted in exchange for being the ones in charge of the entire temple system, right? And uh, and so the Pharisees, although they there was tension with the Sadducees, um, they still had to work with the Sadducees so that they can maintain access to, to the temple. Right. So I'm, I'm seeing a picture here that the Pharisees, they, they have control of the people. They have the, they have the will of the people in mind and the people support, whereas the Sadducees are sort of hobnodging with the movers and shakers trying to uphold the, the Roman peace. Yes. And, right. So they're the brokers of the Roman peace. So, so we, uh, what I'm seeing here is two different approaches. Yes. To a Messiah rule that could come about, where the Pharisees are like, the Messiah is going to come, and we can keep the rules right, we keep the the, the law and order right, and the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to overthrow our oppressors because we did everything right finally. Where yes. the Sadducees are like, look, I don't know if a Messiah is coming or not, but what i care about is keeping the temple open and the way to keep the temple open is to make peace with rome to snooze it up with them to 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 maybe have some corruption deals going on that the right king gets in the right the, the right the right uh people are in charge of the sanhedrin so that there's always going to be peace and who cares if messiah shows up or not right Yes, that's 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 exactly right. And then when you begin to dive into their beliefs a little bit more, uh, the Sadducees also denied a lot of the supernatural. So they denied the existence of angels and spirits. They denied the idea of a resurrection and the afterlife. And so for the Sadducees, what was most important was the here and now. And so political expediency fit in mm. with their worldview, right? There mm. is no resurrection. There is no afterlife. Angels and spirits don't exist. What matters is right here, right now. And if I'm going to make the best of my time today, if that means working with the Romans, I'm going to work with the Romans. And so, yes, we're in charge of the temple. We're working with the Romans. We're trying to keep the, the Pax Romana, so to speak, um, keep our people from revolting against uh, against the Romans and make a little money while we're doing it as well. 
And so, yeah. And so, again, because the Sadducees were in charge of the temple, if somebody were to come to the temple to offer a sacrifice, they could easily say, uh, this is not a good enough sacrifice. There's clearly a blemish here. But so that you can still offer your sacrifice, we've got a whole array of animals that are perfect that you can choose from. But of course, you're going to have to pay a fee. And so they were also profiting off of the religion of the Jewish people. Which is why Jesus was so mad when he went to the temple. Exactly. He was, that's the whole story of Jesus coming in and overthrowing the, the tables and, and, and kicking people out of the temple. It's because of the system that the Sadducees set up so that they can profit from it. Right. And so in Rome, you had like an emperor, you, you, you had like a governor, and then you had like a tetrarch would be, you know, also like a, like a mini king over, over geographical regions. And so it would be the job or the role of the Sadducees to be the ones that were helping massage those relationships. The Pharisees are not really against those relationships because they want the temple open too, but but they have a dream. And their dream is that their intense dedication to the law will be noticed by Yahweh. Yes. And he will send the Messiah. Right. But then there's two other lesser known groups. One of them is in the Bible. One of them is not mentioned in the Bible, but we know they were both there, right, at the same time. Yes. And were tensions on the system at the time of Jesus. Right. So our third group that we're going to take a look at are the zealots. And uh, the zealots are, every time I, I teach this to my middle schoolers, my middle schoolers are always they kind of lean towards the zealots. And the reason they lean towards the zealots is because they were they were kind of the rebels, okay? They were extremely opposed to the Roman government. They, they had no desire to pay taxes. They had no desire to be ruled by the Roman government. They hated anybody that worked with the Romans, so the Zealots would have been very much against the Sadducees, and uh, they even went as far as to pick up the sword and murder government officials because they thought that the way to gain Jewish independence was to incite a giant rebellion and overturn the Roman government by force. So are you telling me that in the time of Jesus, there were like Jewish Al-Qaeda? Yeah. They were like terrorists, right? They're, they were very much like that, yeah. And, and and they went out and they would they they would attack Sanhedrin, they would attack anyone, they they would do what they needed, they they would stab you in the back, like literally. And yeah. and and particularly if they could get close to a uh a government official because their way of bringing about a messianic reign is to attack the oppressors and someone may rise up out of the zealot movement who actually has gathered enough power to overthrow i don't know why they would think that an entity as large as rome <laughs> like it's kind of crazy right yeah yeah, but in their mind, that was the only way to do it. 
right? The whole working with the Romans thing, not going to work. All right. The whole, you know, keeping the law thing, not going to work. We need to take matters into our own hands and we need to overthrow the Roman government, even if that means a bloodbath. And Yahweh will be with us because he has promised that he will put someone back on the throne of David. And we, we just have to help Yahweh. And the way we help Yahweh is not praying. The way we help Yahweh is not making offerings. The way we help Yahweh is not making laws upon laws, but like killing the bad guys. Yep. Those now, are the zealots. And my students love the zealots. But I got to ask you, didn't Jesus? Because like, if I'm remembering Jesus had a zealot in his 12. Yes, he did. Yeah, uh, he was known as Simon the Zealot. And we don't have a whole lot of information about uh, Simon the Zealot. Uh, we do know he's one of the disciples, but we don't really have a whole lot of information to go by other than the Bible tells us that one of the 12 disciples was Simon the Zealot. So that's a very interesting person to add to your group of followers because a lot of the people that Jesus would have had as disciples would have probably been more of the Pharisee. coming for the Pharisaical ideology. Um, and yet you now have this Zealot that's also part of the group. And so you can kind of see where there may have been a clash there in ideology between the disciples. Well, I, I always point this out when I teach my class at the church on this, because another one of Jesus' disciples is Levi, Matthew Levi, the tax collector, who yeah. converts under the command of Jesus and leaves behind his tax collector. So this is the kind of guy that Simon would normally be killing, right? Like someone oh, working sure. for the establishment. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like even among the Pharisees, right? A tax collector would have been a persona non grata, right? Would have been a person that you just would not associate with. You don't get friendly with, okay? Parents would disown a son who chose to become a tax collector. That's how badly tax collectors were viewed. Because even though Pharisees would never say, okay, let's take up swords and overthrow the Roman uh, government, right? They would never actually say that. They weren't very fond of, of the Romans, and they weren't very fond of the idea of working with the Romans either. And so now you have a zealot who is willing to literally take someone's life, and now you're mixing him with a tax collector. You know, it makes it makes you wonder, like, what was Jesus trying to do here? <laughs> it makes me wonder how Sabbath uh, potlucks went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Know how that goes. You uh, know, and, and also, you know, I, I always joke about this. You know, Jesus sent them out two by two. I wonder if he ever put Simon and Levi together. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But what we see, what we see is that these, and we've only named three, but these four groups are the major political groups going on at the time of Second Temple Judaism, the time that they're expecting the Messiah, the time that Jesus is rising to power, and Jesus is very much aware of this. Yes. And even mixing these elements together. Exactly. 
Exactly. So we've got one more group of people we need to talk about. And this group is not mentioned in the Gospels or in the New Testament, but we do know that they existed at the time of Jesus. And these were the Essenes. Essenes. Now, yes, the Essenes were, they were kind of like the hippies of of Jesus's time. They were extreme. Yeah, yeah. Hippies is not a bad word. They were extreme. They were counterculture. They were hermits. Hermits is a good word. Yes. Yeah. They decided that the best answer to Roman oppression is to just pack up, go live in the desert, and follow God as closely as possible by reading scripture, copying scripture, um, and maybe eating, maybe even reading uh, literature from, from other uh, religious people at the time, right? And so they just kind of packed up and they went out and, and lived in the desert. Yeah, basically, as I understand them, they, they came to understand all was lost. They, they came to understand that all was lost for now. They also believed in a Messiah. Actually, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, additional writings suggest that they may have thought Melchizedek was going to resurrect as a Messiah. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. There's some stuff there in the Dead Sea Scrolls that we believe they may have been collecting. Um, but they were expecting a Messiah. But But their basic political ideology was that it's all lost for now. These Sadducees are way too liberal. These Pharisees are just way like into creating a populist movement. And, and these zealots are going to get everyone killed. So we're going to take the sacred scrolls. We're going to take the sacred writings. And since we can predict that Rome's going to come through and destroy everything, and by the way, they're not wrong, <laughs> we're just going to wait for all that to happen. And we're going to go hide in our cave by the Dead Sea Scrolls, perhaps. We'll talk about that community in a minute. We're going to go out, hide the Judean desert anyways, bury our scrolls, do our ritual baths. They were very much into ritual washing. Yep. And, and, and live this sort of really hippie but pious hippie life. Like not free love life, but, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but hippie on the terms of hermit, hermit in weirdness. Yeah. Um, you know, like eating things like bugs and and honey you know um locusts and honey and and sort of being out in the desert and we're just gonna wait for it all to blow over and when the romans come through and destroy everything and everything blows over a messiah will rise out of us of course (laughs) and we will go and take back over again so that's their plan yes and and so the essenes were you know and this is probably why they weren't mentioned in the New Testament or in the Gospels is because they're just kind of invisible. And that was by design. They wanted to be invisible. And so they kind of kept to themselves out in the desert. But we can credit them for uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, so, so the community of the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, um, they're called... What are they called? They're called Qumran. Yeah. So the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, some people believe are the Essenes. There is some intellectual academic discussion on if it was or it wasn't, but the general consensus was 
it probably was. Um, because who else would be hiding scrolls out in the desert but these scenes, right? Right. But my question then is, because you said, and I also agreed, that they're not named in the New Testament, but there are some people, and I don't know where you fall on this, there are some people who believe that John the Baptist was of this influence. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's possible. I have read people making that case where um, it's possible that John the Baptist was part of the Essene community. However, it's it's interesting that he leaves that community and yeah, he kind of stays in the outskirts of Judea um, and he starts preaching uh, a message, you know, in the wilderness to to prepare a way for Jesus. So that would have been a little bit, I think, uncharacteristic of the Essenes, I think. But, you know, uh, it's possible that that there was a lot of Essene influence in uh, John's lifestyle. I I, kind of side where you side on that. I don't think he was a part of that community, but I think he's influenced by that community. In, In the same way that we might say, no matter who you are, you're, you're, you're influenced by your culture at that time. Yeah. You know, that doesn't take away from, you know, your religious devotion or the trueness of your message, but you're a product of your time. Let's face it. He's preaching in the wilderness, just like the Essenes. Yep. He's actually just North of the dead street. See, uh, scrolls community, the, the, the Qumran. He does share dietary and ritualistic washing. I mean, he is the Baptist, right? Yes. He's the one doing baptism. And baptism evolves out of Second Temple Judaism. Yes. Because they believe in ritual washing. They believe that they might have touched something unclean that's made them unclean. And so they have to always ritually wash, right? And so some people have made those observations in John the Baptist. I think these scenes are an interesting group because they are probably the community of Qumran and they probably give us the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see large portions of the Old Testament that were preserved with miraculous um, accuracy, right? Yes. And we also see other writings um, that we would not necessarily accept as part of scripture, but were part of Second Temple Judaism. And they've taught us a lot about Second Temple Judaism and what was going on there. The Essenes believed that a Messiah was going to rise if it would be after the Romans killed everything <laughs> or, but, or, or not. What their basic belief was we're hiding in the desert because these other three groups are nuts. <laughs> We're just going to wait and see what the fallout is and when the Messiah shows up. Yes. Um, so there you have it. You've got those four different Jewish parties or sects or ideologies. And everybody at the time of Jesus would have fallen. Every Jewish person would have fallen into one of these different categories. Now, the whole reason to even look at this is to figure out how these people would have related to Jesus, right? Because now we have an influential teacher 
rising in Palestine, who is generating a following. And so how do all of these different groups of people respond to Jesus? How do well, they respond to his ministry? Right. So, so along that line, what you just said was that every Jewish person at the time of Jesus falls into one of these parties. So which one was Jesus in? <laughs> so um, that's a great question. And I think the way to answer that is to try and see how each of these groups would have uh, responded to Jesus himself. So you have the Pharisees and the Pharisees, they don't like Jesus because they think he's too, too much of a sinner, right? He doesn't so, keep the law good enough. Yeah, G Jesus does not keep the law good enough to be a Pharisees, right? Which is why you have those accusations against Jesus about him being a, a drunkard right? Or a glutton. And you have uh, accusations about him um, eating with tax collectors, right? These would have been absolutely huge no-nos for the Pharisees. So, so the Pharisees he, aren't down with Jesus chilling with prostitutes. No, they're not. Uh, that would have that uh, been jumping several of the fences that they put around that Old Testament law, oh, yeah. right? So no, Pharisees do not like Jesus, so there's no way that Jesus would have found a home among the Pharisees. Then you look at the Sadducees, and the Sadducees are like, no resurrection, no supernatural. I mean, they're not even believing in miracles, so they're probably thinking that Jesus is too spiritual, right? The Sadducees right, but yeah, yeah, too spiritual, but also... He's a threat to them because oh, politically, yes, politically, right? Like, talk about that. Why would he be a threat to them politically? So Jesus, is a, so uh, Jesus would be a threat to them uh, politically because for them, it was all about the relationship with Rome. It was all about keeping uh, the peace right among among the the jewish people and in reality the sadducees didn't really have much to say about jesus until jesus started disrupting that peace disrupting that relationship uh with with uh rome towards the end of his ministry so towards the end of jesus ministry we've got people kind of uh rising up We've got a little bit of a disturbance. The Pharisees hated Jesus so much that they're starting to cause this, this little ruckus in, in their neck of the woods. And so the Sadducees are like, no, no, no. We need to get rid of Jesus. He's causing too much of a stir in Jerusalem. We need to squash this and squash it now, right? Which is why the, the high priest said it's better for one man right, to die than for the whole nation. So they saw Jesus as a disruptor, as, a, as somebody who was stirring the pot a little bit too much. And so to keep Rome happy, they needed to get rid of Jesus. I, I'm assuming the fact that Jesus had at least one zealot on his team yeah. <laughs> it didn't sit well with Sadducees. Oh, for sure. I think that's, that's correct, right? 
Um, and so guilt by association there as well, right? If he's willing to have a zealot on his team, okay, we can't take a chance here. Right. But Would yet, have been their thinking. Yeah. But yet on the other side of that thinking is the zealots probably aren't crazy with them either because Jesus is into all this love your enemy, yes. go the second mile, right? Like, yes. They're like, no, if you find a Roman tax collector, you stab him in the back. And But Jesus is like, no, if you find a Roman tax collector, you help him with his bag. And if he asks you to go another mile, because by Roman law, they would have to help for one mile, right? right? This is part of the Roman peace deal that if a tax collector or a centurion needs your help, you have to help them for at least one mile. And Jesus yes. is like, no, 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 take them two miles. Like right. Jesus is all about if they persecute you, you, you give them hugs and kisses. Right. Yeah. They strike you on one cheek offer them the other, right? So so all of these sayings of Jesus, particularly when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, My the, zealots, the zealots are going to be like, uh, no, <laughs> negative. That is not what we're about here. Um, and so, again, Jesus would not have fit in with the zealots either, right? <laughs> so, so we've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the zealots, and None of them would be claiming Jesus. Jesus doesn't fit in with their group completely. And then, of course, you have the Essenes. And the Essenes, honestly, I'm not even sure they realized Jesus existed. Unless, unless of course, John the Baptist was an Essene. And, and he would have been communicating to them. But aside from that... They're in the desert. Probably, they don't know what's going on, man. Yeah, they're probably like, <laughs> Jesus who? <laughs> what happened? Who's this guy? Well, um, you, you know, I I don't want to go down this conspiracy theory hole, but they are in the Judean desert. Jesus does hang out in the Judean des desert a lot. Right. Um, there could be some cross-pollination there. Who knows? You know, I'm thinking about it. After Jesus' baptism, he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming he's practicing some sort of asceticism, which is which would have been up the, the vein of, of the Essenes, right? The Essenes would have actually looked at that and said, hmm, not a bad guy. He might right? be our guy. He might be the guy we're waiting for. Yeah, it may, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, but at the same time, you know, um, Jesus wasn't very much of a separatist, right? He went right. to the people, but he did it by reaching people one by one. I don't see the Essenes associating very much with prostitutes or, uh, you know, with um, a lot of these tax collectors and things like that, which Jesus did. So even then, the S he doesn't fit with the Essenes either. And so if Jesus, the if the Essenes ever hung out with Jesus for a day, they would never get out of the ritual bath. They would just like be washing themselves yeah. over and over and over again. Cause for they're sure. so, so concerned about impurities falling on them. Right? Yes, exactly. So again, uh, Jesus doesn't fit there either. And so when we take a look at all these different political groups, while Jesus may have had some things in common, right, with, with these groups more than others. He doesn't quite fit in with any of these groups. So what you're telling me is Jesus was a really poor politician. He was a very, very poor politician, but an awesome messiah. You know, I just like think, and again, my podcast doesn't get political, 
But Jesus could have easily used any one of these political movements of his time to help advance his mission. Mm -hmm. But Jesus refuses to side with or align with any one of the four political parties of his time because his mission seems to be larger. It may have something in common with different political parties of his time, but his mission is larger than any one political party of his time. So what do you think that tells us about how Christians should deal with political parties? I think it shows us and it teaches us that while there may be some good in different political parties and things that you agree with, to align yourself fully would actually be a disservice to the gospel and to the kingdom of, of God. Yeah, I kind of would say that we are in the same situation that Jesus was in. Mm -hmm. There may be political parties that have values, maybe all political parties have something we can value or agree to, mm -hmm. but that our mission, the mission, let's call it the Messiah's mission, is too big for one human system. Yes, exactly. We, we like boxes. As humans, we like boxes. And in that way, we're a lot like the Pharisees. We like creating boundaries and we want to stay within those boundaries. But Jesus, if we're truly going to live up to the teachings of Jesus and we're truly going to follow him and, and use him as our example for life, those boxes are not going to work. We have to break out of those boxes when necessary, right, to advance the true kingdom agenda. We have these four groups. We have Rome. We have all this stuff coming to a head. We have 400 years of political oppression. We have the Jewish people on the edge of their seat, like something's got to break, you know, like, like it can't go on like this. God didn't bring us out of Babylon to be further oppressed. And, and, you know, you, you've got the Pharisees. They're just like, la, 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 la. And we just got to be so careful that we can win God's favor back. You got the Sadducees. And they're just like, no, 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 no. Political alliance, political alliance. Let's just keep the power. We keep the temple open. We got the money coffers open, right? And then you got these scenes like, we're, we're out of town, man. You guys are all flipped out. We're gone. And then you got the zealots and they're like, let's overthrow Rome. And the funny thing is the only one who eventually overthrows Rome is Jesus, but not by force, but by love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so Jesus is a little bit of all these people, or maybe all these people are a little bit of Jesus, or maybe we need a Messiah because of the mess that all four of the ruling political systems of the time of Jesus is creating in Second Temple Judaism. And when I think about Jesus and I think about, you know, Mark only ever talks about Jesus going to Jerusalem once, although clearly he went more than once. Mm -hmm. 
But when Mark talks about Jesus going to Jerusalem, it's like he's coming up from Jericho. And I know you've been there. I've been there. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea. It's it's the lowest. It's the city. Is the, is the cities that's at the lowest point of the earth. It's literally below sea level. Jesus comes up from Jericho and he's gathering a following. And you can see in Mark that the following are starting to come with them as they're hearing. You know, the, you know, there's this blind guy and he's like, who is, what's this big commotion about? Uh, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And people are joining. And, and I've actually walked that road of Jericho from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it comes up over the Mount of Olives. And so you have Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem now. And as he's going, they're saying crazy stuff. They're saying, Hosanna to the highest, right? They're they're saying, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the one who's coming in the name of David, right? And, and he's riding on a colt and he's, he's doing all these Old Testament things, right? All these Old Testament prophecies, you know, he's fulfilling them. He's coming up over the Mount of Olives, just like David fleed to the Mount of Olives when his throne was in trouble. Like he's doing the reverse of that. He's coming down the Mount of Olives and the people are with him and they're joining in and they're singing and they're dancing and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. And, you know, I just like... It's Passover, right? Like this is Passover. This is a week before Passover. This is happening. And so like everybody's in Jerusalem. Like this is the, it's like their Christmas, right? It's like the one time everyone comes to town and you need the temple for Passover. So they're all there. And so like it's in the mix of these four parties, this confusion over where Messiah is going to come, that Jesus starts coming down the hill And everyone's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And I love Mark's account of it. Because Jesus gets right to the steps of the temple in Mark's account. And stops. And right there, everybody is ready to crown him Messiah. And everyone's in town. Um, I'm, I'm just sure... The Pharisees are going nuts. The scribes are going nuts. <laughs> Someone's sending a telegraph off to these scenes. <laughs> Your dude's here. Come and see him. <laughs> right? <laughs> By the way, that reference in uh, Matthew 24, when Jesus says, if they tell you the Messiah is out in the desert, he's referring to the Essenes who mm-hmm. believe the Messiah is coming from their group. Right? Um the zealots are like, does he need our help? Who, who do we stab? You know, like, just think about that majestic scene. He's got the whole populace behind him. It's building, it's building, it's building. He gets right to the temple. Everything stops. He's like, I'm going home. <laughs> and it says he went and spent the night in Bethany. <laughs> yes. Like, he could have. He could have been king. He could have been king. He he could have aligned these three parties to do his deeds. Mm-hmm. 
but he restrains himself. It reminds me, it reminds me of Satan's temptation to him and during the temptations, right? Just bow down to me and all this I will give you. It's like, I, I don't, I don't need your help. My father has a plan for this. And I don't need your help. And it's the same thing when he's coming down off that mountain and everyone's ready and, 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 and all the groups, they would, they would empower him. But no, he's got plans to go hang out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus overnight, come back and cleanse the temple in the morning. <laughs> like he's he's literally gonna go throw it in their face rather than work with them when they would have done it. Yeah. And that's your typical Jesus moment. Yes! He is constantly turning our expectations on their head and showing us that his way transcends anything that we could have ever thought about. Right. And showing us that what God is doing to bring about the messianic reign, God will not pollute with human systems. Human systems may be willing to propagate our message to a point, but there's always a cost. Only Jesus and only the gospel are the pure way to bring about forever lasting revolt against the evilness of this world. Hmm. When I think about the Sadducees trying to make peace with Rome, the Zealots trying to overthrow Rome, the Essenes running away from Rome, <laughs> the Pharisees trying to produce a righteousness that would overcome Rome, it will take Jesus' death. Jesus' death by submitting to Rome. Ah, he submits yeah. to Rome. Ah, he lets he lets Rome kill him. Ah, Christians are going to pull their hair out, right? Yep. Like, like he he lets them destroy him. Like, destroy this temple in three days, I will build it back up. Right? Isn't that what he said? Yep. And they destroy the temple, not the second temple. Jesus. And in three days, he rises it back up. And it'll be less than 30 years. It's all gone. The temple, the city, everything. A couple hundred years from that, it's the gospel of Jesus that topples Rome. The emperor will convert. <laughs> Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Right? Only, only the true Messiah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And only the true Messiah's way. He will not be put into what you call those boxes, right? Yep. His ways are greater than our ways. That's right. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Hallelujah. You have been listening to a podcast produced by simplyvinny.com. 
stop by our website, read our blog, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and all that jazzy promotional stuff. But remember, I'm the podcaster that likes to remind you when life throws a monkey wrench at your head. Jesus is still the logo, the reason, the logic, the word that builds your life back all the way to the kingdom of God. Until next time, God will be blessing you. See you at the next podcast.